Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, sociologist, preacher, and cultural critic Michael Eric Dyson. His new book is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. Through letters written to black victims of police killings, including Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Eric Garner, he traces the genealogy of anti-blackness from slavery to the events of 2020. We'll listen back to my December 8 interview with Dyson, And since this is a previously recorded show, we won't be taking your live calls and emails. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In his new book, Long Time Coming, scholar and preacher Michael Eric Dyson writes letters to victims of racism and police violence, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Elijah McClain, and he grapples with America's attempts to reckon with race. Dyson is Distinguished University Professor of African American and Diaspora Studies at Vanderbilt and author of many books, including Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America, and Jay-Z Made in America. Thanks so much for joining us on Forum, Michael Eric Dyson. Thanks for having me. It's really great, actually, to be talking to you now in the month of December, when we tend to look back at the year we just had, and what a year, right? I'm curious, what what are the lessons from this year that you are processing right now that, that you think are important for people to hear? Well, I think that uh, as an ordained Baptist minister for 41 years, Uh, I know that history's contingencies reveal uh, sometimes some remarkable uh, aspects to our human existence that we couldn't anticipate. You might interpret them religiously as divine will, uh, but you might see them historically as just a citizen of the United States of America or a member of the globe and our global community as Uh, plagues, possibilities, and uh, realities that we can't avoid, whether it's a global pandemic like the virus that is stalking uh, the world right now, killing over a million people, whether it's a racial pandemic that erupted here in America, um, whether it's an election where evangelicals were certain that God, white evangelicals, I should add, we're certain that God was going to put 
Donald Trump back in office for another four years and other evangelicals praying that that would not be the case. So we're having religious civil war over the interpretation of an event like uh, uh, an election that reveals to people uh, that these historical contingencies and these happenstances and these serendipities and these fortuitous occasions or these luck, this luck and this chance has resulted in a world full of hurt and pain and trauma and misery. And we are left to our own devices, whether religiously or in the broader sacred, uh, uh, secular world, to try to figure out what the heck to do, what to make of it, and what do we do as a nation, as a globe, going forward from here. You know, you you often talk directly to white people in your books, um, or to white America. I mean, you did that in Tears We Cannot Stop in 2018. You do it in this book. I'm wondering, after this year, I mean, what do you think white America needs to hear right now? Well, I think that, look, um, the pledge to make a difference in the world was great in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's death. But there's got to be a recommitment. You know, it's one thing to get woke. It's another thing to get awake again. (laughs) Uh, Because when you're woke, you got to go to sleep. The alarm clock has to be set. You got to wake up again. It's like a conversion. You know, you think you're in a particular religious tradition, but you got to keep on fighting for it. You think you're committed to democracy and you got to keep affirming the necessity of practicing principles that will be the predicate for your common existence in a community. So the same thing with racial reckoning. It can't just be a one time fits, you know, one time does it all a one size fits all you got to keep committing and recommitting to reckoning. Reckoning means over and over again, you're grappling with a particular issue. You're trying to figure it out. You're trying to determine what it is that will be uh, a sufficient answer to a persistent conundrum, a persistent problem, a persistent plague that we've been, you know, tasked to find relief from. So, you know, I tell white brothers and sisters, it's easier in the immediate aftermath of trauma to be committed than to do the unsexy thing during normal times, quote, normal times, when there is no racial conflagration, where there is no outrage against the vicious expression of police brutality, though we've seen another incident quite recently in Columbus, Ohio, um, when there is no consternation generally um, to galvanize Uh, black and white and Latinx and Asian and indigenous and all sorts of peoples of color together to galvanize them to come together to fight a common enemy, a perceived common enemy, racial injustice. And the commitment to racial reckoning that was made in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd has to really be understood as not only an ongoing process, but that one that gets transformed Uh, when it's transferred from the streets to, say, corporate suites or to classrooms um, or to domestic spaces or to homes and houses where people have to work out uh, their understanding of what that racial reconciliation, what that racial reckoning looks like. And again, you know, it's one thing to put up a black box up on on Instagram or on social media to signify your commitment uh, to racial uh, justice and racial reckoning. Another thing still to figure out what that might look like. So I invite white people to be as curious and as imaginative about the process 
of figuring uh, what that looks like as uh, they are about other aspects of our society. One of your chapters is a letter to Emmett Till, actually, and you write in that chapter, quote, long before your death and so many times since then, we have pledged to reckon with the racial calamity at the heart of our democracy. And too many times we have reneged and failed to embrace our best racial future. Do you think we're in danger of doing that again? Yes, <laughs> quite frankly, um, because think about it. Every station, every broadcast, every uh, radio or television outlet, every media outlet was chock full of what to read, what books to buy, what measures to take, uh, entertainers, Hollywood stars committing themselves to making a difference in their you know, lives, in their professions, in their art, that this time will be different. And there was reason to believe this time would be different because the streets were swollen with, you know, not only the bodies of people of color, BIPOC as it is now called, but white brothers and sisters too flooded those streets. Uh, in fact, they were viewed as the greatest protests against racial injustice in the nation's history. And that is largely due to the fact that there was a, a a resurgence of response and resistance, not only among people of color, but for the first time for many white folk, there was an awakening about what was going on. I think many of us were at home uh, during the pandemic, therefore our screens were, were more readily available. And when George Floyd's death uh, sparked those screens, ignited, igniting kind of social media uh, you know, viral response, uh, a lot of white brothers and sisters were home and therefore saw it more readily, more easily than they might have ordinarily uh, seen it. And then I think they saw that what black people had been saying to them was true. You know, we often don't do anything. The police just for no good reason assault us, attack us, tase us, baton us, beat us, um, render trauma to our bodies and often kill us. And there before our very eyes, we saw it all in, in full view of the world in daylight, not, you know, or, or, you know, growing dawn, but darkness, but not yet dark. And the world saw what happened. A police person put his knee, bore his knee into the neck of George Floyd. And for more than nine minutes, they said eight minutes and 46 seconds, but it was really when we do a journalistic uh, recount, so to speak, it was more than nine minutes that this man was subject to his mortally bruised column being asphyxiated by the knee of Derek Chauvin and the knees of other cops were on his back and legs. And he was laying prostrate on the ground. He wasn't running. He wasn't being offensive. He was calling the cops, sir, an officer. He was being extremely courteous and, and indicated that he couldn't breathe and begged for relief. And nothing he said to this cop or these cops could prevail upon them to provide him the relief necessary for him to live. White folks saw that and said, enough is enough. Not only people of color, not only communities that struggle ordinarily against these, these problems, 
but now white folk got involved. So there was a huge outcry for justice, for racial reckoning, for arguing against systemic racism. But now here we are six months later mm -hmm. after George Floyd's death and hardly a word is spoken, nary a word is articulated. The notion of systemic racism, which was on everybody's tongue, I'm being you know, a bit hyperbolic, not everybody, but a lot of people's and commentators' tongues, political figures, now not so. Uh, the, the notion that the system had to give, that we had to change permanently what was going on was, was up, uh, not only for debate, but for radical reconsideration and for affirmation, hardly there now. So unfortunately, um, we're in a different phase. You know, immediately in the aftermath of the hurt and trauma, there was tremendous galvanizing impetus. Right now, the imperative to change, I'm afraid, has withered, uh, hopefully not faded away altogether. And I'm here to suggest in this book that if we're to have a racial reckoning, it is one we must consciously and intentionally embrace in order for it to be effective. We're talking with Michael Eric Dyson, Distinguished University Professor of African-American and Diaspora, Diaspora Studies and of Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University. His new book is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. We were just talking about systemic racism in the U.S. and this year's protests for racial justice. What questions do you have for Michael Eric Dyson? Are you hopeful? about the fight for racial and social justice. Why or why not? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your thoughts or questions to forum at kqed.org. More with Michael Eric Dyson after the break. Stay with us, I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America, Michael Eric Dyson speaks to readers of the pervasive harms of racism through letters to Elijah McClain, Emmett Till, Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, Hadia Pendleton, Sandra Bland, and Reverend Clementa Pinckney, all black victims of systemic racism or police violence. He joins us now to talk about the impact of systemic racism and how it operates today. What questions do you have for him? And what are your thoughts about the fight for racial justice? Are you hopeful? You can call us 866-733-6786. You can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us at forum at kqed.org. Just before the break, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, you were talking about your concerns about how, you know, basically the support that that you saw in the summer has sort of waned in terms of really trying to reckon with racism and address systemic justice. And 
You also described the killing of George Floyd. And of course, in your book, one of the things that really stands out is that you really do describe in vivid and intensely painful detail the killings of George Floyd. You, you talk about Ahmaud Arbery and others. And I mean, there's one point when you specifically ask people to try to feel what Arbery felt as he ran and tried to escape. And I wonder about doing that. I mean, I, I imagine it was in part to try to re to try to galvanize and reignite this support again, this sort of commitment to to addressing racial injustice. Yes, I think that, you know, reigniting it, inspiring it again, galvanizing it, trying to come to grips with what we see uh, to portray as descriptively to depict as graphically uh, as possible the horror, the tragedy that cannot be avoided by too many black people, by too many Latinx people, by too many minoritized peoples, that to use my pen in an epistolary form to write a letter to, not about, these figures, a George Floyd, an Ahmaud Arbery, an Emmett Till, um, a Breonna Taylor, a Sandra Bland, a Reverend Clemente Pinckney, an Elijah McClain. It is the effort to assert the necessity of grappling with these traumatic events in as colorful and as poignant a forum as possible. I realize that part of this is generational. I'm a 62-year-old uh, Black man for whom... Uh, the trigger warnings that are often set off in younger generations, which to be certain are healthy, mm -hmm. have not worked often in my generation because we have often felt, I don't want to speak for an entire generation, but for those in my circles and those in part of my age range with whom I commune and converse, that we had no trigger warnings. We had no safe spaces to which we could retreat. We had no possibility of avoiding uh, the urgent and horrifying realities to which we were compelled to respond. And I suppose that philosophy has compelled me in this book to as clearly and as directly as possible communicate um, the traumatic consequences of race, the incredible anti-blackness that threads itself through the culture and that continues to manifest itself. So yes, in a sense, my book is a call to arms to rearm ourselves with the eloquent defense of the vulnerable and to penetrate those spheres of American life that need to be um, that need to be dealt with in regard to systemic inequity. Anything that ends in the word system, public education system, criminal justice system, political system, um, you know, what yes. public education, healthcare, all of these systems have to be adjusted, have to be engaged, have to be talked about as the sites of perpetuating legacies of inequality. I find it very interesting to hear you talk about, um, about, triggers and and spaces because it is a thought that I had that it can be a very fraught thing to ask people to feel through vivid description because as you say in one sense it can trigger and and re-traumatize 
And then on the other side of it, for those who've never experienced that kind of terror, that instead of creating empathy among people who have not experienced that kind of racial terror or, or inspiring activism, it can kind of create this sort of perverse fascination as well. Did that mm -hmm. come into your mind as you were writing it? Absolutely. The pornography of Black death is inexorable, unavoidable. Some would say ineluctable, but inevitable. It, it can't be avoided because there's a fascination with Black death, the end of Black life, the last breath breathed by a Black person. Eric Garner going down for the count, begging his tormentor, Daniel Pantaleo, to relieve the chokehold that had been outlawed, that was wrong, and yet ended his life. George Floyd begging for relief, and yet his life was ended. And the thing I beg of my readers is the following. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, whatever trigger may have set you off, whatever re-traumatizing has been endured, the pornography of Black death, whatever it is that you experience, think. Eric Garner had no choice. Think. George Floyd had no choice. Think. Breonna Taylor, no choice. So yes, I am not suggesting that we shouldn't pay attention to the health of those who are left behind. But funerals are indeed for the living. The dead know nothing of them. And so we do attend to our own situation, our own sanctity, our own sanctuary, our own safety, and it is necessary. But in full empathy with those who have sacrificed their lives through no desire of their own, with the exception of perhaps Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who in taking a vow to follow Jesus into uh, the, the most hideous experiences in life into the ends of the globe, may have signed up theoretically, but most ministers don't believe that they'll die for their faith. And so none of these people in that sense intended to live their lives toward the idea with the purpose in mind that they would sacrifice them for the greater good in the same way perhaps that Martin Luther King Jr. did. So in that sense, none of them had a choice. And can we not endure a moment of trauma a moment of hurt, a moment of pain, a moment of agony, a moment of, to some, indefensible exposure to the limits of life for the sake of expressing the message that these people died unjustly and that it must never happen again, and we must do all we can to make certain of that. Yes, your letter to Clemente Pigny was heartbreaking. Um I'd like to go to our callers who are wanting to join the conversation. I'll start with Timothy in San Francisco. Hi, Timothy. Hi there. Hi there, uh, both of you. Uh, thank you for the conversation. I um, just um, uh, want to, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Mr. Dyson, for this. I, um, I was in Maine. I'm from Maine originally. I live in San Francisco now, but I went back to Maine into a, the summer into a very, uh, what do you, would, you would call a very uh, white, completely white um, and rich uh, neighborhood. And I've never seen so many BLM, Black Lives Matters, uh, signs out on the grass. And, and it was, uh, you know, it was wonderful in a way, but 
it just it's, it points to virtue signaling and what he he was talking at, about at the beginning of the thing. It makes you feel good and you know porno, what do you call it? Black Lives Matter pornography. I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but the hypocrisy. I mean, these people would not let a multifamily unit zoning thing in that in this community for their lives, but they love black people. The hypocrisy just rings deep, and uh, I just wanted to mention that and see what he thinks about what I'm talking about. And Timothy, thanks. Uh, Michael Eric yeah, Dyson, your thoughts, yeah. Timothy, thank you so much. He has more eloquently than I have, and more directly, uh, specified the problem. And that is, how do we transform? I don't think that those who express their initial support for Black Lives Matter are to be invaded against, that they are to be seen automatically as hypocrites, because I think at the moment they expressed a genuine desire to identify with the masses of Black people whose backs had been pushed against the wall, who had no recourse except to flood the streets, to articulate their pain and desperation, to be heard, to be seen, to be respected. But Timothy makes an extraordinarily important point. How do you translate that stuff? On the one hand, you say Black Lives Matter, but multifamily dwellings, read poorer people, read lower economic people, read potentially black or brown people, read undesirables, read folk who may disturb the the equanimity, the poise, and the, the docile character of our community that may disturb its placidity that may interrupt with our business as usual. So how much are you willing to yourself sacrifice in order to make certain that the reality of black lives mattering becomes an existential and empirical truth and fact, and not something in theory, not some philosophy that's high flown, not something that's fancy and something that's beautiful and something that's trendy, but something that is transformative. He's raising a heck of a point there, and we all have to raise that question. Yes, I mean, you talk directly about the insidious nature of white comfort and the insistence on white comfort. Uh, Before, you've talked about white innocence. I mean, do you want to talk about how those things act? Because I think in some ways, by describing what they are, you're, you're also giving people a path forward. Absolutely. I hope so. Yeah, white innocence, you know, James Baldwin has written brilliantly about this. Others have picked up on the theme. I've tried to write about it where, you know, white brothers and sisters uh, hedge themselves against the critical awareness of their own complicity in structures of inequality by insisting that they are good thinking, right doing people whose intent is never to harm or hurt. And the refusal to acknowledge uh, their own inadvertent, unintended, but nonetheless uh, impactful complicity in the very systems to which they draw attention as being unjust. White comfort in the sense that uh, prevails in the sense that It disturbs our belief about how the world operates, about what is important, what should be prioritized, uh, what should have uh, our moral ambition engaged and energized, what we should do to make certain that the triumphant 
reign of anti of fighting anti blackness would uh, organize be organized in our communities and how we can you know fuel it how we can finance it how we can you know buttress it not how it causes us to think well if it comes down to black lives mattering or the ability to continue and perpetuate a life of white comfort whether not whether that means not knowing what black people are up against not not having to learn what black people think and how they react being outraged at black people and being outraged at the outrage of black people right and we saw some of this this is not strictly about white comfort it's also about political comfort of a certain class think of president obama recently weighing in by saying that the term uh, to, to fund the police is somehow problematic. Now, in one sense, he's giving you game, so to speak. He's putting you on game. He's giving you savvy, politically mm -hmm. speaking. He's been the president. He knows these words trigger certain responses. These other words don't. So if you find another word, it might be better. Okay, we can get that. We understand that. On the other hand, it's not comfortable for him as the former president of the United States of America to recognize that he may not have done all he should have done or could have done when he was president to foster a better climate between police departments and black people because his own discomfort as a black person made him not want to reckon with ideas of race because he felt uncomfortable being ghettoized. His existential discomfort and the political price he paid for it prevented him from using and leveraging the enormous insight, erudition, and learning he has about race in defense of vulnerable Black people. And now that he is out of office, Black people are more willing to be critical of him because they're going, what do you have to risk now? You're making a bunch of money. You're still revered as the forever president. And yet the caution and care, the almost uh, preemptory uh, weighing in that you do, as Charles Blow from the New York Times says, ends up chastening, or, or, excuse me, chastising young black people and progressive folk in the name of a political um, realpolitik, uh, in the name of a political prudence and a realpolitik that really doesn't square with, you know, changing society. Either you're going to change society and make people uncomfortable or you're going to maintain the status quo and maintain comfort, whether it's white comfort or political comfort or the status quo comfort, all the same. Well, it's really interesting to hear you say that. And so, I mean, specifically related to police reform, is that what you're calling for? Or are you, are you calling for a complete reimagining of the role of police, of a complete restructuring, in part because so many of the people that you highlight in your book are, of course, victims of police killings. Yes, we have to reimagine it. Look, let's be honest. We've tried the, the reform route, haven't we? I mean, we, we, we've said we have. We've tried to reform the police. Police unions are too powerful. Look at the horrendous human being who heads the New York one. The racistly, the racially agitated phraseology, the the barely, you know, disguised racial animus that courses through such some of the rhetoric of many of these 
um, police unions that are powerful, out, all out of sort, all out of proportion to their number in the community. So reform is extremely difficult. The president Obama should have recognized that, should have acknowledged that. If he's going to make a serious investigation of what it takes to reform the police, those unions are too powerful. He ran up against them. And when his own attorney general, Eric Holder, had those consent decrees, which were not aggressively pursued when um, Loretta Lynch uh, came into office for a little while, and certainly not under the present administration, it shows how difficult it is to reform what doesn't want to be reformed. And so we have to reimagine what public safety is about. The police have no copyright on public safety. There are other measures of public safety. Uh, security guards are involved in public safety. Uh, neighborhood watch people are involved in public safety, both of them detrimental in certain degrees and ways uh, to black communities to be certain. But we have to reimagine what people are there for who claim to be police people or public safety. Public safety is bigger. Let's decentralize the authority of the police, spread the obligation of public safety across a number of divisions, and then invest in them, fund them. I find it interesting, on the one hand, that people are upset by the notion of defunding the police. No such outrage about defunding public education and resources for poor people. Well, we're talking with Michael Eric Dyson, and we'll have more with him after the break. Just on this point, Nancy writes, as to whether white people are still engaging in systemic reform after the protests, at least some of us are. I have committed, along with a dozen mostly white neighbors, to engage in the reimagining safety process in our city. We've begun to meet regularly as that process gets underway to ensure that it results in real change. We'll get more of your thoughts after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Michael Eric Dyson. His new book is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. His other books include Tears We Cannot Stop and What Truth Sounds Like. He's also a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. What are your questions for Michael Eric Dyson? What are your thoughts on the fight for racial justice? Are you hopeful about it? Why or why not? You can call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email questions to forum at kqed.org. This listener writes, I feel hopeful over the long term because I feel like the next generation of political leadership gets it. Seeing Cori Bush, a community activist from St. Louis, where Michael Brown was killed, run for and get elected to Congress, just one of many next generation leaders is encouraging. But there are still so many that need to retire and get out of the way that it will continue to be an uphill battle. Let me go to caller Luke in Santa Rosa. Hi, Luke. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, you, he touched on some of my question uh, just a little while ago, but my question was, don't we need more progressive politics? Um, Mr. Dyson spent eight years defending in debates, which I've watched Barack Obama and his policies. And I feel like he's 
slips out of uh, that fact by not using straightforward language when answering and talking, kind of like loopholes of, yeah, verbal wordage, you know, that he can get, escape. It's well, very, very frustrating to listen to him. Well, Luke, hmm. let me give Michael Eric Dyson a chance to respond. Thank you, Brother Luke. I appreciate that, man. Give me an example of what you're talking about, and then I'll respond to it. Can you give me a concrete well, example of a loophole like, yeah. that I've had? Okay, thanks. You just made an excuse for Barack Obama and why he did what he did. Why did he come out of the woodwork to stop a progressive movement and, and tell basketball players they need to stop protesting, get back to work? Wow. I, I have to ask the host of the show, did you hear me defending him or criticizing him? I was literally saying that using, you know, to attack young people, to assault young activists with the uh, tag of they're wrong about defunding the police is missing the broader point. And he would have to face up to the fact that not until late in his own presidency did he even begin under his attorney general to address the situation of for people with the police and that he hadn't done all he could have done in his own uh, administration. How is that escape? I'm criticizing him. And I did hear that. And actually what Luke is saying and what you're saying also reminds me of something else that I had wanted to ask you about, Michael mm -hmm. Eric Dyson, which is what you think about Joe Biden. I know that you endorsed right. him back in March mm -hmm. and you talked about how you are a black progressive in America, yes. but that you felt that Biden was somebody who, of course, is largely seen, right, as an establishment Democrat, more of a moderate yeah. Democrat, uh, was the right person for the times. Yes, I mean, and, and excuse me for that, yes, and I hope uh, our, our friend is still there. I don't know if he's hung up, but yes, um, and I would ask him to, um, you know, to, in one sense, to constantly engage with my understandings of who Obama is by reading my book. I wrote a nearly 400 page book on Obama, not just appearing on television. And but let me let me agree with that caller before I answer your point. Let me agree with our caller by saying that I did try to thread a needle. Let me tell you what I did. I tried to hold him to account and be critical of him, even as I tried to defend him against unprincipled racists who were having his head uh, met metaphorically and symbolically or who wanted to. And so I thought it was an extremely difficult balancing act. And our caller may indict me, rightfully so, for having failed to maintain that balance. On the one hand, I believe that when you have Mitch McConnell saying at whatever point he did that he wants to make this president a one-term president, when you had you know other white politicians who for no other reason than the color of this man's skin opposed him, then I think that even white progressives who may have underplayed the racial animus at stake by adhering to and tacking with, along with, a class definition, an economic inequality definition, as opposed to a racial one, one I've had some arguments with uh, the supporters of Bernie Sanders, whom I uh, in, in mostly enjoy and embrace. But there is a real tension that ought to be acknowledged, the racial blind spot of even Bernie Sanders supporters who have not come to grips with the lethal intensity and the deeply entrenched white supremacy that is there. So I had to defend Obama against that stuff while at the same time attempting to hold him to uh, account. 
And so I don't think it's verbal loopholes, though I may have tried to use those. Who knows? I was trying to thread that needle in a white supremacist culture where my white privilege is non-existent. And therefore, I had to articulate those ideas. But read my book, please, to understand my critique that has earned me enmity from many of the supporters of Barack Obama. That's the irony. When it comes to Joe Biden, I think that Joe Biden has the potential to do far more about race in particular than Barack Obama. Why? A, he has white privilege. And that white privilege means he has the ability to speak about race in a way that Barack Obama didn't feel compelled to, capable of, or had the space to exist within in this culture. On the other hand, I think he may have some better ideas about what to do, some explicit embrace of black people. What other president has ever stood up and said, hey, black people, I owe you because you took care of me. I now want to address you and take care of you. And some of the positions he's appointed black people to so far, I think potentially will outstrip President Obama in regard to race. Now, I think we need more. And I think the caller is right. We need progressive ideas. We need progressive politics. So I don't just want a black face in a high place. I want some progressive ideas uh, to come forward. The, the emailer talked about Cori Bush, who, um, who was engaged in a fight against racial injustice in St. Louis uh, when, when Mike Brown was killed by a police officer there. So I think that progressive ideas are extremely important, extremely necessary. Uh, it doesn't mean that progressives can't be self-critical, but it does mean that Joe Biden, I think, was the best person for the job among the people who were vying for it. And, and let me quote the great philosopher Chuck D., uh, who said black people supported Joe Biden because they knew white folk were going to support Joe Biden and that he would potentially win because he might be seen as the greatest, you know, compromise candidate. And therefore, our support of him in part was to recognize the impulse of white people and what they were tending to do and how we could use that reality to nevertheless get our message across. So it sounds like then that you... I mean, the key is to really keep him accountable. I mean, you're seeing significance of Biden acknowledging the fact that he owes a debt to black people, that he is making appointments that are substantive in your view. But what is that going to be? I mean, to hold Biden accountable? Well, what does that look like? Yeah, I tell you what, it doesn't look like it would look like under Donald Trump. Raise your voice and get ignored. Raise your voice and be uh, dismissed. Raise your voice and get called names. Now, it doesn't mean the absence of vitriol is the presence of creative insight or uh, political erudition about the best way forward. I think the best way forward is to hold the president accountable, to raise our voices. The NAACP this day is meeting with Vice President Harris and Pres uh, Vice President-elect Harris and President-elect Joe Biden. Why? Because they are concerned about the numbers and degrees of diversity and specifically black people among many others included in this new administration. He's meeting with them. He's hearing their claims. He is not dismissing them. By the way, President Obama didn't meet with the Congressional Black Caucus until two and a half years in his first term. And they wanted to meet with him and he was a former member of their, their group. This shows you the difference in approach of a Joe Biden and a Barack Obama. Well, Peter writes, after George Floyd's killing, I had a friend who wasn't outraged and was expressing support for 
all lives matter. And in my fog of and feelings of collective rage, I couldn't even grasp at how to address this with them, so I didn't. I still haven't talked to them. I've had a lot of people tell me that it's not worth the discussion. How do you have discussions with people who are otherwise just not getting it? I'm curious how Dyson deals with skeptics. It's an interesting question because as we talked about at the beginning, you do try to specifically address white America, right? Yes, I do, yeah. Any thoughts for Peter? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> thank you for that, Peter. Thank you for the honesty and for your courage in saying what you said. Um, I think that, look, to be black is always to be treated skeptically. <laughs> Just going in the door. What you're feeling now and the outrage and the disgust uh, is what a lot of black people feel like, dang, we're walking in the door and automatically seen suspiciously, viewed skeptically, dismissed. Oh, of course, you're going to speak about race in a certain way. And of course, you're going to think about black people. And of course, you're going to be prejudiced for your own people, not acknowledging that to be white in the dominant culture means that you don't have to announce your identities because they're taken as the status quo. Therefore, whiteness is rendered invisible because it's seen as universal. I say all that to say, that when coming to talk to people who say, well, all lives matter, you go, look, I wish they did, but they really don't. If all lives mattered, it wouldn't be necessary to say black lives matter. And when somebody says black lives matter and you respond with all lives matter, be original. You're doing the same thing people have done consistently in this culture. What's that? Appropriate black people, appropriate black culture, you know, rock and roll, R&B, soul, maybe even some hip hop, certainly blues. Now you're appropriating black phrases. Come up with your own. <laughs> you can be a little bit humorous and say you were appropriating black people again. If all lives matter, we wouldn't have to say black lives matter because all lives don't matter. We have to talk about black lives mattering also. That's the missing phrase there. Black lives matter also. Black lives should matter as well. And as far as blue lives matter, ain't nobody born blue. You're born black, uh, according to society and its judgment of racial categories. Blue is not a racial category. Blue is a profession. Let's be honest about the philosophical categories through which we speak. One of the things that I was really struck by was your chapter on black exhaustion. I connected with it a lot because in some ways, I also think this is what Peter may be alluding to. But, sure. you know, I often wish that it would be seen as a form of generosity or an attempt this attempt at greater understanding and sharing traumatic racist experiences or sharing your views and personal experiences on things would not necessarily be seen as, you know, an attempt to an attempt to try to call somebody out, but actually mm. recognize that it is exhausting and it is a lot of work, but that when you reach out, it's because you have faith that that person might actually hear you. That's right. No, it's well stated uh, more eloquently than I did. Yeah. Um, you know, as one professor says, it's not a call out, it's a call in. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm very critical of cancel culture. As you know, in my book, I'm critical of cancel culture to the degree that we don't provide people a pedestal upon which to stand. Let's get rid of the Confederate, Confederate monuments on their pedestals, but in their place, let's not stand in self-righteous indignation against those who would seek to understand, but who have failed to do so. Um, perhaps that's my Baptist pr uh, preacher training or inclination that, yes, we must hold people to account. We must certainly demand that righteousness be done politically and socially and legally. 
But at the same time, if people make mistakes along the way, let's not get rid of them. Let's not dispose of them. Let's not do away with them. And let's understand uh, what they're up against, their history, their culture, their training. Now, you're absolutely right. On the other hand, there's enormous exhaustion on the part of those who have to explain. And you know what? There are enough black people out here for those who are exhausted. Let's do it in 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 droves. But in in terms of having some people on and some people off while you let's do it in shifts. Some black people explain while other black people can go to sleep. I think that would be helpful. We're talking with Michael Eric Dyson. His new book is Long Time Coming, Reckoning with Race in America. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Susie in San Carlos. Hi, Susie. Join us. Susie, are you there? Well, while we try to connect with Susie, Chris writes, last year our book group read Tears We Cannot Stop. This year we are blessed to have an art installation on our church property in Petaluma. It's called Pray Their Names, a tribute to 143 black people murdered since Emmett Till. There are many more. These are the ones the artist chose. As a mostly white congregation, we care and are trying to make a difference. Bless you, Reverend Dyson. And uh, let me see if I can go to more. Please reach out to me. Send that to me on my email dysonspeaks at gmail.com. Please uh, reach out to me. I would love to see that. So are you hopeful at this point? I mean, we did talk of, yeah. I am, you know, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I know no, we no, have no, limited please. time. Let me tell you this. Uh, I'm not optimistic. Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian said, that's a shallow virtue. You put your, you put your thumb in the air and you go, hmm, which way is the air blowing or your forefinger? But hope says, even when there's no evidence, I believe something is possible. As you brilliantly and elegantly stated earlier, if you're out here fighting, you do believe that something can be changed. That, that's a sign of hope. That, that ability to say, no, we're going to resist what you're doing because we think something better is in the offing or on the horizon. And so, yes, we must continually involve ourselves in practices and in principles that allow us to change, to believe we can change, to offer change as the ultimate goal of our struggle. And as a Christian minister, I have to believe that it can happen. I believe that even when there's no evidence, stuff happens. Nobody knew that uh, Emmett Till's death would spark Rosa Parks to stay on a bus that would spark Edie Nixon to organize a boycott along with Rosa Parks and Joanne Robinson that would put Martin Luther King Jr. at the head. And then for 12 years of his remaining life, he would then become the signal leader and the symbolic you know, embodiment of civil rights in this country. Nobody knows what happenstance, what fortuity will resort, result in such extraordinary social transformation. But I hold out hope that that will occur. And I believe that well-intending American citizens can still make a difference in our day and age. And you're right, we do just have a minute left, but I would love to get your reaction to this listener who writes, curious about Dyson's thoughts on the next generation's organizing and leadership, what he sees as the next generation getting right. Well, I think they're getting right self-care. Martin Luther King Jr. at 39 died. When they opened his body, they said he had the heart of a 60-some-year-old man. Uh, that meant that the stress was killing him. That meant that the hurt and trauma he endured was painful. I think they're getting that right. They're getting a right to go out into the streets and to reorganize the, you know, the logic of the American democracy by representing their viewpoints. I think the cancel culture is wrong, but I think what they're doing to try to express themselves and love each other and challenge each other and uplift this country to its best values, to its highest perch, where they can embrace the goals and ambitions 
of radical justice is a beautiful thing, but it doesn't happen automatically. Just because you're young doesn't mean you're going to be progressive. Look at the tiki torch bearers who were young, well-coiffed white men who were talking about neo-fascism and neo-Nazism. You must be intentional and choose to change and not believe that just being young will turn the trick. I mean, I, remarkably, I feel like it is progress to some extent that that uh, Obama can be criticized. <laughs> it's <laughs> extreme progress because you try to do that when he was in office, you would have been shunned and canceled as uh, people tended uh, to do me when I was uh, criticizing him when he was in office. So I would, again, I forgot the caller's name who talked about me defending Obama. Please read my book and understand the needle I was trying to thread, but it is extremely difficult to criticize him. And yes, it is progress to be able to criticize him, but he sold 900,000 copies of his book the first day. He's a big guy. He can take it. <laughs> well, your new book again is long time coming. Michael Eric Dyson, thanks so much for talking with us. Really appreciate it. You do an extraordinary job and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Ariana Prell produced today's segment. My thanks to her and my thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. You're listening to Forum. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.